Well, good morning, Word of Life. How are we doing? Great to see you. Wasn't it great to see Pastor Mike on the video today? Come on. I've always said Mike Chiz has got a star quality. He belongs on the silver screen. Some people call him the Robert De Niro of Upstate. Not everyone, but some people. All right. Well, happy 4th of July. Glad you're able to come hang out with us here today. Um, I'm going to let you guys in on um, a little secret, a little background conversation. I wanted to do a video to commemorate uh, July 4th, to commemorate Independence Day. I wanted to do a video where I was going to dress up in a red coat. And Megan was going to dress up as a revolutionary soldier. And I was going to meet my doom. But somebody who will remain nameless shut it down, said, no, this is church. It's not about, re, you know, redoing the Patriot with Mel Gibson. And it didn't happen, but it was on my mind. So um, I've seen Megan later on. Let her know that video would have been epic, but never mind. Nevertheless, happy 4th. Glad you were able to come hang out at church today. Um, I want to put something on your radar, just so you know, just so you're aware. Um, in a few weeks, so not next week, but a few weeks from now, uh, we're going to start a new series as a church. Um, and so for a part of July and then into August, we're going to invite the whole church to walk through the books of Luke and Acts. And then Sunday services, we'll take time and we'll teach through those books that will coincide with the readings from that week. So you'll be getting more info about that. But I just wanted to put that out there so it's on your radar. Um, we're looking forward to doing that. I'm Things going to be a great series. Um, we've got some great ideas as we've been cooking that already. So be on the lookout for more info about that. But we're going to be uh, spending a decent amount of time going through the books of Luke and Acts. And uh, hopefully you'll jump in the reading plan. I've no doubt it'll be a massive blessing to the church. But for today, we're going to continue uh, through the series of church words. Now, uh, who was here last week? Um, if you weren't here, catch up online. It was incredible. So Annie Bullard uh, was able to come and share. She talked on the word sin. As you can imagine, uh, sin is a delicate topic. There's all sorts of emotions that are attached to this. And Annie did a killer job. As she came in, went through it, showed God's love. Absolutely. It was great. So if you haven't had a chance to catch up online, I definitely suggest you do. That is not one to miss. It was absolutely excellent. And I asked her this week if she was going to summarize it in a sentence, what would she say? And this is what she bounced back to me. We were able to unpack what sin is and what we can do about sin and how we can love other sinners like Jesus. It was incredible. So hopefully you have a chance to check that out. But for today, the word we're going to look at is the word saved. The word saved. And the idea behind the series of doing church words is that there are a number of words that we would use in a church environment or we would use in a faith context or in a conversation about things of God and things of the kingdom or things of the Bible that you wouldn't necessarily hear in everyday conversation. Now, saved is a word where you would hear it in everyday conversation. We'll talk about, you know, you saved money or, you know, a goalkeeper saved a penalty kick or someone saved the day or something. So it's not necessarily strictly um, a Christian word, but in church, we'll use the word saved saved to describe somebody, that they are saved, or we'll talk about the moment when we got saved. Um, and in book of Acts, there's a jailer who's talking to Paul that says, what must I do to be saved? And so this idea of saved is definitely a churchy word. It's definitely a word that you'll hear in and around church. So it's something that um, I've learned a lot as I've dug into today. But I wanted to share the definition that I wrote down. The best working definition I could come up with from uh, looking through a number of things is saved is being rescued from the power and consequence of sin and included in an eternal loving relationship with God. It's being rescued 
from the power and consequence of sin and included in an eternal loving relationship with God. It's being rescued out of the kingdom of the world. It's being rescued out of the mess that we find ourselves in. It's being rescued out of the consequences of the sin and the junk that's in our lives, our choices, other people's choices around us. It's being rescued out of that and into God's kingdom. And it's also being included from being disqualified and excluded and not able to come into God's presence and not able to be in a right relationship with God to being included and invited as a treasured son or daughter. It's not just a rescue. It's not just get on the lifeboat. It's not just let's get you out of the way of a hurdling car that's running towards you. It's also being included, but it's not just being included. It's not just come to dinner, but we're going to ignore the mess that's going on, the chaos that you find yourself in, the devastation uh, that's in your life. It's not, I love you, and we're going to ignore everything else. It's both. It is a rescue, and it is an inclusion. It is a rescue from the consequence of sin, and it's being included into an eternal, loving relationship with God. And it's interesting in the New Testament... The New Testament is the, uh, if you were to look at the whole Bible, the New Testament makes up about the last quarter of it, and it uh, starts at the birth of Jesus and recounts his life, and then the impact that it had as the churches started spread throughout uh, Europe and the known uh, nations at the time in the Middle East. But the last quarter of the Bible, the New Testament, talks about being saved, interestingly, as both being a past, present, and future topic to talk through. So we have the three tenses of saved, that we are saved. You can read about that in the book of Ephesians. It talks about we are being saved. It talks about we will be saved. We are saved. You have been saved. We are being saved. Those of us that are being saved is what Paul writes to the church in Corinth. We will be saved is what Paul says to the church in Rome. The past is dealt with. We are saved from the past. The present is being dealt with. And the future is going to be dealt with. So we have been set free from the past. We are being set free from the present and will be fully set free in the future. We have been healed. You will continue being healed. And one day you'll be eternally healed. Past, present, and future is how the New Testament authors describe being saved. So using the definition that I put together for today, we have been rescued from the power and consequence of sin and have been included in an eternal loving relationship with God. And we are being rescued from the power and consequence of sin. And we are being included in an eternal loving relationship with God. And we will be rescued from the power and consequence of sin and will be included in an eternal loving relationship with God saved. Great word. If one person claps, we all have to. It's a rule. One of the verses we're going to look at today, and there's a number that we're going to go through, is 1 John chapter 4, starting halfway through verse 14. The Father sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. This is, of course, God the Father sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world, the Savior of the world to rescue and include all who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in His love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. 
And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment, but we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Now the scriptures that I just read, very encouraging. A lot of stuff there that's uplifting. A lot of stuff there that the kind of Bible verses you would put on a fridge magnet. It talks about having God living in them, that they live in God, that God loves us, that we can trust his love, that God is love. To live in love means to live in God, that to live in God and our love can grow. These are great encouraging verses, but they're sandwiched between two truths that are important for us to remember if we're going to take these verses and apply them to our lives and take them seriously and let them transform our hearts. John 14, excuse me, 1 John 4, 14. The Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Down to verse 17. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. The Father sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. The inference being, without a Savior, the judgment of God is terrifying. Without a savior, the judgment of God is absolutely terrifying. The father sent his son to be the savior of the world. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. And it's amazing. I've heard it a number of times. And whenever I do, I kind of smile and nod along. But the amount of times people will say to me, only God can judge me. You know, people will kind of say that. And normally what they mean by that is that, you know, people are judge, judgmental and they're awful and they're terrible and hypocritical and all sorts of stuff that Annie talked about last week. You know, people are judgmental and terrible, but only God can judge me. And I understand what the point is that they're trying to say and why they're saying that. But if I'm being honest with you, I'd far rather people judge me than God. Because God will get it right. And he knows all the stuff. If I had a choice between being judged by God or being judged by people, I'll pick people. But I don't want to be afraid of the judgment of God. I don't want to be afraid of God's judgment on my life. I don't want to be afraid that God is going to hold me account to the mess ups that I've made, the things that I've done in my life that I wish I hadn't done. I don't want to live in that fear. And I can't fix that myself, which is why you need a savior. But as with many, many things, if you don't care about the problem, you won't care about the solution. If we don't think we need saving, if we don't think we need rescuing, we won't care about a savior or a rescuer. If we don't think the burning building is a problem, we don't care about the fire department. If we don't think the sinking ship is a problem, we won't care about the lifeboat. But if we do, we realize it is the most important thing in the whole world. I want to come to another portion of scripture we're going to dig into. And this is a very well-known passage. There's possibly some of the most famous Bible verses we're going to hit on in just a moment. It's in John 3. And in this portion of the Bible, a man called Nicodemus, who was a very well-respected, he was an important teacher in Israel. He knew the Old, uh, Old Testament as well as anybody else. And he heard about Jesus. And he wanted to go and find out for himself. So he starts asking Jesus some questions. Start asking him some kind of explanation about what's going on. What's happening? Jesus, you're starting to gather a crowd. Jesus, you're starting to cause a bit of a movement. Jesus, you're starting to make some waves in the world around us. And me, Nicodemus, as a highly respected Jewish teacher, I want to come and find out from you what on earth is going on. And for a lot of this conversation, it's very confusing for Nicodemus. And we're going to pick this up in verse 14. This is Jesus talking. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. Now, why would Jesus point to the story about the bronze snake on the pole in the wilderness? 
That was a question I came across as I was looking at this verse. Okay, hold on. Jesus is trying to let this man who knows the Old Testament as well as anybody walking the planet, he wants him to understand who Jesus is as the Savior of the world, as someone that can set people free, who can grant eternal life. And to help Nicodemus get this understanding, Jesus points him back to the book of Numbers and talks about a story of a, a snake being lifted up on a bronze pole. So I want to go through this story with you from the book of Numbers. And this, I'm not going to lie, let me just be honest with you for a moment. This took a lot, I, this wrecked me this week as I was thinking, hold on, what is happening here? The amount of confusion that I had, the amount of time it took me to try and wrap my head around what God was communicating, why this meant so much, why Jesus chose this to point to Nicodemus. This was a good journey for me this week. I'm happy to share it with you. Numbers 21, verse 4. Then the people of Israel set out from Mount Hor, taking the road to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. But the people grew impatient with the long journey. If you know the story, you'll know that that's a very common thing that came up. The Israelites have been rescued out of slavery. They've been delivered from Egypt. The Red Sea split in two. The Israelites walked uh, through on dry ground, and they're on their way to the promised land. And so much complaining and so much grumbling and so much doubt and so much frustration came out of them. It made the whole situation 20 times worse. But the people grew impatient with the long journey, and they began to speak against God and Moses, which happened frequently. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die here in the wilderness, they complained. There is nothing to eat here and nothing to drink, and we hate this horrible manna. And so this rebellion against God had been going on for a long time, and we see this is a final straw. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people, and many were bitten and died. Then the people came to Moses and cried out, we have sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord told him, make a replica of a poisonous snake and attach it to a pole. All who are bitten will live if they simply look at it. So Moses made a snake out of bronze and attached it to a pole. Then anyone who was bitten by a snake could look at the bronze snake and be healed. And this is the story that Jesus points to in his conversation with Nicodemus and says, okay, you're going to help gain understanding about what I'm going to do about what the cross is going to mean, about how I'm the savior of the world. You're going to gain understanding and insight about how all this is going to work by remembering the story of Moses over a thousand years earlier. Something about this points us to Jesus and points us to what he achieved on the cross. And as I thought about this, and as I read what different experts and different commentators and scholars and academics and people way brighter than I am could think about this, what it came down to is that the sin was represented in the snake. And as it was lifted up, the people had to face up to their sin. And they had to be honest. And they had to look at it. And they had to recognize, yep, there it is. I've messed up. I need a savior. God, I need you to deal with this. I can't do this. See, we in, in our humanity, we want to ignore sin and put it to one side and focus on the empty tomb. But the empty tomb isn't the whole story of the gospel and the message of Jesus. There was also a cross. And that cross represented the sin in my life, your life, everyone else's life. And it was a focal point. And Jesus is saying, okay, the same way that the Israelites had to own up and look up and face up and stare at that and recognize, yes, I've messed up. It's the same for us as we think about the cross and what it means for us. Jesus put it front and center and let Nicodemus know that I'm dealing with this. I'm dealing with the sin in people's lives. I can be a savior that can set people free. You know, a firefighter isn't a hero because they ignore the fire. 
A police officer isn't a hero by ignoring the crime. A soldier isn't a hero by running away from the battle. For Jesus, the fight was overcoming the sin of the world so that you and I could be set free. Jesus isn't a hero because he ignores sin. Jesus is a hero because he rescued us from the power and consequence of sin. Amen. Amen. First thing I'd ask you to write down, saved from the power and consequence of sin. Saved from the power and consequence of sin. Back to a Jesus conversation with Nicodemus, rereading verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the people can face up, acknowledge their sin, see it clearly, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And this has a double meaning. There's the lifted up of physically being hanging on a cross. But there's also the lifted up being exalted as the true king of kings. So that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. For this is how God loves the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. And there's a, a strange idea that's become uh, very common, very popular, and this may be a modern idea of thinking about God and thinking about eternity and thinking about heaven or hell, but there's this idea that, uh, you know, that God is, is constantly sort of flicking through people and filtering who gets to go to heaven and who gets to go to hell. You know, so this, this person was good, heaven. This person was pretty good, uh, okay, heaven. This person was bad, oh, definitely hell. This person did some real bad stuff, hell. Well, this person was bad, but then they turned it around and changed their mind, so they, I guess they get to go in. Well, this person was, was pretty bad, mm, what do you think? Okay, yeah, hell. There's this idea that God is just sort of flicking through people and filtering through people, and, you know, good people, heaven, bad people, hell. The people that are on the fence, you know, he has to kind of weigh up, you know, more good, more bad, mm, okay. People that did bad things with a good motive, mm, yeah. It's a strange way to think about it, and there's nothing in the Bible that backs that up. The truth is, we're all in trouble. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. We all have a broken relationship with God. We're all on a highway that is destined for an eternity that is away from God. This idea that God is flicking through and good, good, not quite good enough, bad, there's, there's nothing rooted in Scripture that paints that picture for us. What is rooted in Scripture and what is painted for us is that we are all on a highway hurtling towards a destination I hate thinking about. An eternity that is separated from God. Jesus said this in Matthew 7. You can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell, the road we are all on by default, is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But... The gateway to life is very narrow, and the road is difficult, and only a few ever find it. Two roads. There's the highway, that our sins, our lists of mistakes, our regrets, the things that we may wish we'd never have done, the things that distance us from God, has put us on a highway that we are all on. And Jesus comes and says, but I'm making an off-ramp. I'm making an exit. You can get off the highway and get onto the narrow road that leads to life. I've made it possible to get off the highway. 
This idea that we might accidentally find ourselves on the narrow road getting to Jesus is so contrary to what Jesus is teaching. It's saying, no, you are all hurtling towards a destiny you're going to hate that is, is awful to think about. I hate thinking about it. I have made it possible for you to get off the highway. It is only because of him that we can get off the highway that has taken us to a destination from him. And the second thing, we are saved from the destination we're headed to. We are saved from the destination we are headed to. It's amazing that modern culture in, in lots of ways has reduced the gospel, the message of Jesus, to simply heaven or hell. The idea, you know, that there's heaven or there's hell and Jesus means heaven and not Jesus means hell. And that's a reality that there is heaven and there is hell and I don't want to shy away from that. But it isn't the primary concern of the message of Jesus is heaven or hell. Let me read you this verse from John. This is later on from chapter 3 and verse 40, uh, in chapter 14. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. And what's amazing is that what's said and what's heard are often two different things. No one can come to the Father except through me. Many times I've read that verse and what I've heard is no one gets to heaven except through me. It's not what Jesus said. The primary concern of the gospel is healing our broken relationship with the Father. You fix the relationship before going in the house. Healing a broken relationship with the Father is the primary concern of the gospel. That distance that sin has created between us and the Father is what Jesus came to heal and repair. Now one day, I'm gonna get a chance to prove to my children how much I love them. Because one day, I'm gonna end up going to Disney World. <laughs> I don't have words for how much I don't wanna go. It will likely be the most unselfish act I ever do. It's gonna stress me out, the kids are gonna drive me up the wall. I do not have words for how much I don't wanna go to Disney World. But if you give me a choice and you say, Tom, you can either go to Disney World or you can go to hell. Well, I'm gonna choose Disney World, right? I mean, you know, I mean, hell, I mean, it's, you know, it's hot there and there's pitchforks and bad things and... I'm also a very picky eater. I, I made a decision a, a few years ago, I'm not trying any new food. I'm just on repeats right now. <laughs> and if you were to say to me, like, Tom, you, you can either eat some gross weird stuff or you can go to hell. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm going to choose the, the weird food. Unfortunately, we've reduced the gospel and we've altered the gospel to be, well, do you want to go to heaven or do you want to go to hell? Well, I definitely don't want to go to hell. So I guess I'm choosing heaven. That's preferable to the bad place. But it's not the message of Jesus. It's not the message of Jesus. It's not about booking a room in the house, but about restoring a relationship with the homeowner. No one comes to the Father except through me. We all choose heaven over hell, but being saved is choosing a healed relationship with God over anything else. A healed relationship with God over anything else. And there will be no shortage of opportunity for you to choose the Father over anything else.
A healed relationship with the Father is the primary reason that Jesus came. John 1, this all the way back in the beginning. This is quickly becoming one of my favorite Bible verses. But to all who believed him and accepted him, all the people that trusted Jesus, trusted in the message of Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. We don't have the right by ourselves, but because of a savior, because we're saved, we have the right to become children of God. This is an incredible thing. And of course, a child has a room in the house. Of course, a child shares in the inheritance. Of course, a child is included in the love and the blessings of the Father. Third thing, we're saved from a broken relationship with the Father. We're saved from the power and consequence of sin. We're saved from the destination we're headed to. We're saved from a broken relationship with the Father. So what does all this mean? What what do we do with all this? What do we make sense of it all? Well, in Acts 16, there's a story of uh, Paul the Apostle, who's a preacher. He started churches all over the known world at the time. Him and a co-worker of his, Silas, they were in prison for preaching the gospel. And there was an earthquake. And the damage of the earthquake meant that they were no longer confined, and the jailer assumed that the prisoners had escaped. So the jailer, knowing that this is going to lead to trouble, decides that he's going to kill himself. But Paul assures him, no, 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 we're all still here. At which point the jailer, observing that this is a work of God that is happening in front of his eyes, says to Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And the verses that we've read today, to become saved, what must I do to be saved? We've seen that declare that Jesus is the Son of God from 1 John 4. To believe in him, John 3.16. To choose the narrow road and follow him, Matthew 7. To accept him. This is what you need to do to be saved. Accept him. Believe in him. Verse we read a moment ago from Romans 3. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. In the words of Annie Bullard, we're all qualified for a savior. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He heals the broken relationship. He makes it possible. And he did this through Christ. Jesus, when he's freed us from the penalty for our sins by dying on the cross and paying a price that you and I could never, ever pay. Declare that Jesus is the son of God. Believe in him. Choose the narrow road. Accept him. This is simple, but it's not small. It's straightforward. It's not necessarily easy. It's not a small little thing that we do. It's not a tack on to our lives to put faith in Jesus, to trust in Jesus, to believe in Jesus. But rather it's to put your faith and confidence in him, to give your loyalty and allegiance to him, to trust that he truly is Lord of Lords, to honor him as the king of all, to decide deep in your soul that he knows better than you, so you're gonna listen to him. You're gonna depend on him, that your whole life is orientated around him. And enjoy that you are rescued and free from sin and you are lovingly included in the family of God because you are saved. Fourth thing, saved from an eternity separated from God. Saved from an eternity separated from God. An eternity where the broken relationship remains unhealed, unrestored, where we still reject the Father, we still push him away, and that goes into eternity, where we choose not to take the off-ramp that Jesus made possible, 
There's a startling verse here in John 3.35. The father loves his son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. And God in his love wants you to be saved. Wants you and anyone else to be saved. The Bible says it is not the will of God that any should perish. It's not the will of God that anyone should suffer this consequence and suffer this fate. But rather is the will of God that people be rescued and included and restored as a child of God by putting their faith and trust in the Savior that can set them free. The, uh, the Old Testament, they had a system that was initiated by God through Moses of sacrifice, and the idea of the sacrifice was that people could come into God's presence. We talked about this quite a bit as we looked at holy way back in the beginning of this series. But the idea was that the individual would bring an animal to be sacrificed, and they would bring it to a priest at the tabernacle or the temple, and the priest would inspect the animal to make sure that they met the qualifications. You couldn't bring a dud animal. You had to bring one of the best. It had to be without blemish. It had to be a perfect animal that you brought for the sacrifice. So the priest would inspect the animal. And if the animal was measured up, if the animal was acceptable sacrifice, if the animal was qualified, the priest would lay hands on the head of the animal, and the promise was that this act was transferring the sins of the individual onto the animal, and as the animal was sacrificed, the sins died with the animal. So the person could go free of the consequence of sin in their life. This was the system of sacrifice that was set up for the Old Testament. Important to note is that as the person brought the animal to the priest, the priest inspected the sacrifice. The priest did not inspect the individual. The question about whether this measures up or not, whether this is acceptable, whether this is good enough, was not aimed at the individual. It was aimed at the sacrifice. And if the sacrifice was deemed good enough, the sins were transferred to the sacrifice. And as the sacrifice died, the sins died with the animal. When Jesus became the perfect sacrifice on the cross, it meant that you and I, when we go to God, the perfect judge, he is not poking around in our lives anymore, highlighting our shortcomings, highlighting where we've messed up, highlighting where we've fallen short. He's inspecting his son who comes up perfect and blameless and spotless every single time. It talks about the judgment of God as we've just read. As God judges Jesus perfect, we get to benefit from that judgment. And he calls us perfect, acceptable, qualified, loved. And we get the right to become children of God. Being saved, being rescued from the power and consequence of sin, and included in an eternal loving relationship with God no longer separated from God because of the sin and the mess in our lives, because we desperately needed a savior and God sent us a savior. Not brushing off the sin in our lives, but rather looking the snake dead in the face, confident, saying, Jesus, you dealt with that. That we're saved from the power and consequence of sin, that we're saved from the destination we're headed to, saved from a broken relationship with Father, saved from an eternity separated from God. And all of this is possible because of the indescribable love of the Father towards you and to me by sending Jesus to be our Savior. All because of grace motivated by love.
And this, my friends, is the good news of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, I have a couple of questions for you. And if you're able to write these down, maybe you'll have a chance this week, maybe just to pray through this and think through this a little bit. Maybe it'll be helpful for you to sort of reflect on this. But the first question I want to ask is, how are you choosing the Father over anything else? How are you choosing the Father over anything else? There will be no shortage of things that are trying to get your attention, that are trying to get you to choose that over the Father. But where are you choosing the Father? How are you choosing the Father over everything else? The second question, how can you see God's saving work in the past, present, and future? If you're a believer, you are saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. How can you see God's hand at work in your life, God's saving work at, you know, in your own life, in both the past, the present, and in the future? Another verse I want to share, possibly the most famous verse in the whole Bible. We've read it already today. But John 3, 16, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him, to rescue and to include, to help people take the off-ramp. And you may be here today and I don't know your story. I may not have any idea about what brought you to church today. Maybe you're here every single week. Maybe you've never set foot in a church before. I don't know. But you're here today. And maybe something from today has, has clicked in your mind. Maybe it was one of the worship songs we were singing earlier. Maybe it's one of the Bible verses that I read. But you're at that point now where you would say, you know what? This Jesus thing makes sense. I believe this is true. And you're ready to take that first step of saying, you know what? I'm going to start following God. I want to be saved. I want to live saved. I want to live confident that my relationship with God is healed and repaired and restored. You may not be able to put words to it. You may not be able to articulate it, but you just know deep down that you're ready to start this life of following God. And if that's you today, I would love to pray for you. So I invite everyone here to close your eyes and bow your heads. This gives you some privacy to people around you so that everyone can focus on what really matters right now. If you're here and you're a believer, I want to invite you to pray. If you're here, whether in person or online, and you'd be honest enough and brave enough to say, Tom, you know what? I'm not following God, but I want to start today. I would love to pray for you. And I promise I'm not going to embarrass anybody. We're not going to do anything that's strange or uncomfortable, but I'd love to know who we're praying for in just a moment. So if this is you today, if this is a moment where you decide I'm going to start following God, if you can just put your hand in the air just for a moment, online, click the button that says, I raise my hand. I'd love to know who I'm praying for. Amen. Anybody else here? Amen. Anybody else? Wonderful. Amen. Anybody else? Before we pray, all you're saying is, Tom, when you pray, I want you to know you're including me. I'd love to know who we're praying for. Amen. Thank you. Wonderful. Amen. Great. This is the best decision I've ever made. And I believe you talk to other believers, they'll tell you the same thing. Anybody else before we pray? Amen. Come on, Word of Life. Can we please celebrate people making the best decision?
Hey, you can have a make. And we're going to pray a prayer in the words that are going to be on the screen. Now, I'm going to say a line, and then I would love it if you reply back. And if you're one of those people that put your hands in the air, I want you to pray this full of faith, believing that this truly is a life-changing moment. Online, don't just watch. Join in. Be a part of this moment. So come on, everybody. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, everybody, one more time. Amen. Well, for those of you that prayed that prayer for the first time, or maybe as number of times you've prayed it, but today you know it made a fresh start for you. There's three things I want to ask you to do. The first thing is, tell somebody you made this decision today. Tell somebody, maybe a family member, maybe someone that invited you to church, somebody at the church, but let somebody know, hey, I've made a decision, I'm going to try and figure this faith thing out. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other and pursue a life of faith. Second thing is, tomorrow, read the Bible. If you don't have one, we have some at the information desk outside in the lobby. For those of you online, you can get one online free of charge. We would love to give you a Bible and dig in. If you don't know where to start, I suggest the book of John and just start reading and hearing about who Jesus is and how much he loves you and what it means to follow him. And the third thing, be back in church next week. Be right back here and continue to grow your faith. So tell somebody today, read your Bible tomorrow and be back next week. All right, thanks guys, let's welcome back Megan and Andy.